Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast and each installment, myself and the guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their very cores basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Aviva Pinto. Aviva is a managing director with Wealthspire. She has over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. As an advisor, Aviva works with individuals in transition, so sales of businesses, inheritances, divorces, deaths, etc., uh, to determine the most appropriate course of action for their financial assets. Thanks for joining us, Aviva. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. The pleasure is ours. The subject of today's episode is the gambler himself, Kenny Rogers. Rogers was an American singer, songwriter, actor, record producer, and entrepreneur. He charted more than 120 hit singles across various music genres and topped the country and pop album charts for more than 200 individual weeks in the U.S. alone. He sold over 100 million records worldwide during his lifetime, making him one of the best-selling artists of all time, and he was elected into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2013. Rogers also had acting roles in movie and television shows, including the title role in made-for-TV western Kenny Rogers as the Gambler. Additionally, he was a co-founder of the restaurant chain Kenny Rogers Roasters, in collaboration with former Kentucky Fried Chicken CEO John Y. Brown Jr., since the restaurants are long closed in the U.S., the chain is now best remembered for its place of prominence in an episode of Seinfeld, where it's a neon sign tortured and basically drove even more insane Kramer. Uh, Rogers was famously married five times and had five children with four different partners. But it's wife number four that we're going to focus on today. Kenny and actress Marianne Gordon were married from 1977 to 1993, so... It's almost from his rags to his riches there. And they had a son together named Christopher. And when they split, Marianne walked away with some $60 million in divorce settlement, which is a shade over $100 million in today's dollars, which is a statement I never thought I'd be making about 1993. At the time, this was the largest divorce settlement ever in the U.S. Interestingly, though, unlike many high-profile divorces, the split seemed exceptionally amicable. Though I guess it shouldn't come as a total surprise that the gambler knew when to fold them. In a 2006 interview with The Independent, Rogers explained, Marianne really did deserve the $60 million because she's a great girl and we had a perfect marriage for 15 years. In fact, everything was fine until our son Christopher was born. But I wouldn't want him to take responsibility for this because that's when Marianne stopped touring with me and stayed home to take care of him. And then when I came home from touring or doing a tennis tournament, I found that our lifestyles were clashing. So one day, we just said, life is short, we deserve to be happy. Let's find something else to do with our lives. And the marriage ended. 
Luckily for Rogers, his fifth marriage to Wanda Miller was the charm, and the pair remained married for 22 years until his death of natural causes in March of 2020. They had twin sons, born when Rogers was a sprightly 67. The Rogers-Gordon divorce had an atypically happy ending, although Kenny's financial advisor may feel differently about that. More often, such splits are acrimonious and lead to long-lasting strife, both emotionally and fiscally, sometimes even carrying across generations. Given that some 50% of marriages end in divorce, one could argue that it would be irresponsible not to plan for it. Now, that sounds simple enough in theory, but could be much more difficult in practice when emotions get involved. So, Aviva, what are some ways advisors can help clients plan for a divorce? Well, thank you for uh, lobbing that great question at me. The most important thing is in planning is to try and look at what you have and what the other person has. So in this case, you know, Kenny was an up-and-coming star. So when he got married, he probably wasn't thinking about a prenuptial agreement. But most stars these days have trust and estate and financial advisors, and all of us are really pushing for people to have some prenuptial agreements, especially if you're a rising star or you're somebody who's already been established. Um, by the time Kenny got married for the fourth time, um, he was already well known and he was really uh, bringing in some some good dollars from his touring and from his albums and things like that. So having a prenuptial agreement would have saved him a lot of money. Now, as you said in the introduction, you know, he said she deserved half of his estate. So he had about $120 million at the time and she got half of it. Um, so with him, you know, he walked away and said, you can have half. But there are a lot of people who don't have those kind of amicable splits. And what you're going to want to do is make sure that you have something in place where the person that you're divorcing gets a fair shake, but maybe not half of the entire estate. Uh, the other thing we do is we look at what the lifestyle is. And a lot of judges, when you go before a judge for a divorce, will take a look at, well, this person had a private plane and they had a private chef and they had housekeepers and they had nannies. And so what a judge is going to do is, regardless of what's in that prenup, is going to look at, can we take a look at the lifestyle and make sure that this person is not going to be living a completely different lifestyle after the split. Now, a lot of prenups are really airtight. You can't really wiggle them around a lot, but there are some where you can say, okay, there's a provision in here for lifestyle, and therefore the person is going to be able to live the way they lived before. So it's really important to do a lifestyle analysis, which looks at what money's coming in, what money is going out, um, and, and take a look at where the investments are made, were they made with money prior to the marriage, and is it in one person's name, or was it something that was going to uh, finance their entire lifestyle? So, for example, even if you have something that's in your name in a trust, but you're using that money to finance the household lifestyle, then an argument can be made that even though the trust is in their name, because it was marital joint money, that money can be used in the future for marital support, child support, etc. 
So it's really important to take a look at how things are titled and whether the money has been used in a, um, in a joint manner during the marriage. So I'd like to, you know, covered a lot of ground there. Obviously, it's a very broad question. So I'm, I think I'd like to first zero in on the prenup issue because I think, A, that's the, the sure. bright line when you hear divorce and planning, you think prenup. Okay. And I think um, at the same time, it's kind of the easiest and hardest uh, aspect of this because uh, it makes, generally it makes dollars and cents sense, right? It, it's easy for us as, as advisors and attorneys to sort of just look at these things as transactional because it's you know, numbers on a page unless we happen to be personally involved necessarily with the clients. Um, but for them, you know, even if it makes sense as numbers on a page, it's much, you know, their hearts and minds are involved and, and there's much more than that. So a lot of times, even if a prenup makes perfect sense and it's in both parties' best interest, it can still be a difficult thing because just the idea of till death do us part, okay, now let's plan for when this ends before that <laughs> is, is too... You know, it's two competing notions, right? Right. Well, so what are some of the ways that, I guess, you know, you've seen or that you find effective in, in like, like broaching the prenup topic in any sort of successful manner and not having it just die on the vine? Okay, so somebody like Kenny Rogers that was being, you know, marrying for the fourth time, um, I, if I was getting married to that person, I would definitely want a, want a prenup because then I'm protected because, you know, he, he basically had said sometime in his life that, uh, you know, he, he loves women so much and that's why he's gotten married so many times. So, you know, he's not afraid of commitment was what he wrote in his autobiography. Uh, so if he's not afraid of commitment and is easily divorced, then I would want to protect myself. So the way I would approach it with the um, soon-to-be wife would be, hey, you know, look at look at this track record and don't you want to be protected and let's put something in place that if he does divorce you, that you have something to fall back on. For younger couples that are getting married for the first time and there's a prenup involved, it's usually there's trust involved, um, like a, a, a trust fund that has been funded by um, grandparents or parents. And in that case, it's sometimes the parents that are insisting on it. And they're saying, look, this money was inherited money that was passed down. And yes, you guys are going to be able to have a good life about it. But should something happen, you know, we want our interests to be protected. And that's generally very difficult for the person that's coming into the marriage because, as you said, you know, oh my God, we're talking about breaking up and here I am just getting together for the first time. But if you approach it and tell the person that's signing the prenup, you know, this is really a way to protect yourself as well should something happen because if this person passes, it could be in the will and say they pass prematurely, it could be in the will that this money skips a generation and goes on to your kids. So should, should somebody be hit by a truck, for example, you're not protected at all. You don't have anything to fall back on if the will says that the money passes to the next generation. And you may have kids that will be extremely wealthy, but you're not going to be able to pay your expenses on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we try and do is inject a little bit of fear like 
I need to protect myself, so this is a good thing to sign. And it's not just the marriage is going to break apart. And then also you can put in a prenup number of years. So if you say, if we stay married for 10 years, this is how much we'll get. If we stay married for 20 years, this is how much you'll get. So you put in kind of a kicker that says, okay, let's have this marriage last a long time and I'll be even wealthier at the end. So then you're looking at it more as, okay, this is a long lasting marriage. We're going to do our best to make this thing work. And that sometimes takes the tension away from the signing of the prenup. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'm glad you brought up this idea of a term of years, because I think that's a common hang-up that clients have with prenups as well, is that they look at them. First of all, they look at them not as something that works for them, but as something that they're sort of locking themselves into, which is true to an extent, but it's not like a prenup. They make this, a lot of people make the same sort of assumptions about estate plans, right? That they're this, once I sign it, it's just that's what it is, and it's so final. And it's really not, right? Where it's final if you don't change it, but it's very easy to change it as your circumstances change. And you know, for something that's intended to last a, a period of years, it's intended to be revisited. Right. And and a lot of times that does happen, like somebody sells a business and all of a sudden there's a lot of money that's involved. And the first thing I would do is pick up the phone and call the, the trust and estate attorney and the matrimonial attorney and say, okay, we need to redo this paperwork because now our circumstances are vastly different from the way they were prior to this happening. And so they can always be amended and they can always, and you can also have a postnup. So, you know, once you're married and an event occurs, go right back, go back to a matrimonial attorney and say, okay, now that this has happened and these are our circumstances, we need to put a postnup in place. We've been happily married for this many years. I want them to have the benefit of this money that just came in or the royalties in Kenny Rogers, um, you know, in his, um, case um, or the restaurants, you know, and you mentioned at the beginning, he was an entrepreneur, you know, he did a lot, he became a photographer and a very good photographer, as a matter of fact. And he he had a lot of things going on um, in his uh, in entertainment world, he started his own record label, um, he had uh, entertainment centers and recording studios, he bred Arabian horses. So all of these things happened once he became more and more successful. At that point, as a wife, it behooves you to go to a matrimonial attorney and get a postnup and say, hey, you know, I want to participate in all these things that he's doing because I've been there every step of the way with him. Yeah. And it's important to note that depending on what your state you're in, the law won't just automatically assume you as part of those things. the, The difference is, if you don't mind, actually, probably now is a good time to sort of briefly touch on the differences between separate property and community property states. We don't need to get too mm-hmm. deep in the weeds, but sort of vaguely, sure. can you mind explaining what those terms mean? Absolutely. So there are a number of states in the U.S. that are community property states. And what that means, like, for example, California is a community property state. And what that means is anything that has been acquired during the marriage is going to be split 50-50, regardless of what happens. In a um, equitable distribution state, which is most of the states in the United States, what's going to happen is anything that's acquired during the marriage and is used for the marriage lifestyle, that money is generally split 
very equitably. Now, it may not be 50-50, it may be 60-40 or 70-30, depending on how much the other person really contributed to the growth of that money. And the judge is really going to be the arbiter at the end of the day of what is one person's property and the other property. Anything that is titled in a person's name that's never been commingled. So if you have an inheritance that you got from your parents and it has stayed in your name and you have not touched that and it hasn't gone to improve the lifestyle of the family during um, the marriage, then that remains your own the entire time, regardless of how it has appreciated during the time of the marriage. But anything that has been used within the marriage during that time, so for example, you're a big executive at a big company and you have a 401k plan and that 401k plan started prior to your marriage. But during the marriage, you are contributing the maximum every single year and then you decide to split at the end. The wife is entitled to one half of the amount from the start of the marriage until the dissolution of the marriage when they file for their divorce. So anything that was done prior to the marriage still stays that person's property, but anything that happens from the marriage date on can be split between the two uh, because the person was married to that person. And they also look at the length of the marriage. So if you were only married for a year or two, you're pretty much out of luck. You're not going to get half of that. But if you've been married for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, I have a divorce going on right now that's been a 40-year marriage. So, you know, that wife is going to be entitled to quite a lot of that 401k plan. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, you know, we're, we also tend to think about, you know, divorce assets as stuff. Because I guess that's kind of what you're getting at the end of the day. You're getting assets and, and money or items. But there are a number of complicating, you know, when we're talking about property and what's ours may not necessarily be ours, right? Depending on what kind of state you're in. And also depending on what state you're in, there are other complicating factors, things, very common thing, uh, professional degrees, right? This is some, you know, maybe, uh, you know, she went to medical school and she, when they were married and, you know, and he was a, a book editor. So straight out of college, he was maybe making a bit more money while she was a resident, not making much money. But then within five years of her, you know, actually going into private practice and him still being a book editor, that power dynamic completely flips on its head. So now, how does that sort of you know, relationship reconciled in the documents, in the divorce, and in the prenup? You know, and these things that we think of it as assets, but it ends up being so much more than that. Right. So some states will still look at that. Um, there are other states that are now saying, like for New York, for example, is saying, I don't care if they helped you pay for medical school. That's irrelevant at this point. What we're going to look at is dividing the things that you have. So the house and, and the um, retirement account and the investment account. And they're going to look at custody of the children. And those are the things. There's really three things in a divorce. There's the custody of the children and child support. There's the marital support, also known as spousal support, um, and the splitting, dividing of the assets. Those are really the three things that are determined in a marriage um, divorce. And so what they're going to look at is, in New York, they're going to look at, you know, who's who's helped contribute to this and what was the lifestyle and how can you make it uh, equitable. And the example that you just gave of the wife that's now the, the uh, you know, 
physician that's doing really well and the other one that's a book editor and not making as much, she's going to end up being the one paying spousal support. And it's really the moneyed spouse that's going to determine, you know, who gets what. And then they'll, they'll look at everybody's assets and say, okay, well, you know what? He's, he may have been a book editor, but he really amassed a, a good profit sharing plan with his firm. And therefore, part of that profit sharing plan is going to go to her. And then part of her 401k is going to go to him. And what they'll do is they'll equalize it and say, okay, two thirds of this goes to one person. One third of his goes to her. And then they figure out at the end of the day who owes what to one another. Uh, but it's it's really by state, and states can vary a lot. I mean, for example, the age of majority in New York is 21, which means that if you're getting divorced, the person paying the child support is going to have to pay the other spouse until that child reaches the age of majority at 21. In Connecticut, the age of majority is 18. So I always say, okay, well, if you're living in New York, but you also have a house in Connecticut and the kids are in New York, file in New York because this way you're going to get four more years of child support than you would have gotten in Connecticut. So sometimes these state rules can get in the way of um, some something that you think should be fair. Okay, well, my kids are going off to college and you know, we filed in Connecticut, and now I'm not going to have child support during the four years where this child is going to cost me the most amount of money. So it's it's very interesting to take a look in terms of uh, what state you're living in and what the rules are per state. I'm glad you brought up this, the uh, just this explanation of, of how the support works as well, because I think it's very easy for clients and advisors alike to kind of, especially with divorce, to fall unknowingly into sort of traditional gender roles and traditional gender power dynamics. Um, it's kind of why I, I made the woman the doctor in, in my example, <laughs> and I'm glad you, you picked up on it. Um, in that, you know, it, it's a shock still to some people that, oh, wait, you know, it's not her getting half of his money. It's like, well, no, if she is the earner and he's the, you know, not even necessarily a stay at home father, but a, you know, someone who just happens to make less, she may end up having to pay him. It, it's entirely based on. It's not based on gender in a way that it maybe it used to be. And no, the same it's goes the, mon- support, it's the, right? mo- the moneyed spouse. The moneyed spouse yeah. is the one that ends up paying. And it could be, you know, two men, two women, a man and a woman. You know, I mean, there's the, anything goes these days. And, you know, it's whoever has the money and made the most money is the one that's going to end up supporting going forward because they were the ones supporting during the marriage. Yeah. And the same is for, for child custody as well. I believe in many states there used to be. Um, a favoritism, and actually legally codified. Yeah, it goes to the mother, right? The mother. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I, I don't believe any states have that anymore, or if they do, no. it's, it's very few. No, um, it's so basically, it, you know, again, you another- know who's... Yeah, who's going to be able to take care of the child the best? Where is the child going to be living most of the time? And a lot of times these things are redone because, you know, the first three, four years if the child is very small, it could be one parent is staying at home taking care of the child or is the main um, child care uh, giver. And then it could be that in later years, you know, the child's in high school and says, you know, hey, I want to go live with mom now. I've been living with dad, but, you know, she's she's got the cars and she's closer to the city or, you know, I like her apartment or, you know, whatever it is. And so a lot of those agreements can be redone and it doesn't have to be set in stone forever. And that just reinforces the idea that you know, even though we think of a divorce as an ending, a severing of the relationship, particularly if there are children involved, 
it isn't. It severs a aspect of the relationship, but now you're just engaged in a completely new and different type of relationship as a result, and you still have to manage each other and live with each other. Correct. And right now during COVID, I'm seeing a lot of things kicking in. Like, for example, um, people's incomes have gone down because of COVID. So if you were a big real estate mogul collecting rent from a lot of different buildings, and now these companies are going out of business, filing for bankruptcy, unable to pay their rent, your income has gone way down. Same with restaurateurs. You have big restaurant chains that haven't been able to open or have only been able to open outside seating in certain areas, and they have had, their rent has stayed the same, but they have not been able to keep paying the way they were before and making the money that they were before. So if you have a divorce agreement that says that, you know, you have to pay a certain percentage of your income to your spouse, well, if your income has now gone down by 25%, that ex-spouse is now going to also be making 25% less. So, you know, it's the way that the, um, the divorce stipulation is written is very important. Um, and it's, it, if you look at a percent of income, it's really important to think in terms of what could happen, what could go wrong. Um, if you say, okay, this is the dollar amount that I am going to be getting come hell or high water, then you're guaranteed that amount. So I've seen a number kick in recently where it's been a percentage of income and the non-money spouse comes to me and says, well, that, you know, I can't live on this. Well, Everybody's now 25% less here in this relationship. The ex-spouse and you now have to live on 25% less because the money's not coming in. Interesting. And you mentioned earlier that you're working on a, a divorce that was a 40-year marriage. And I think Correct. that brings up a very interesting issue that's sort of uh, coming more into the fore in the last few years with people living longer and longer and the boomers sort of extending you know, their lives, it's uh, you know, ideas of gray marriage and gray divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you mind, again, that's sort of an industry term. So if you, you mind sort of explaining kind of what those mean and what the interesting sure. so, sort of unique aspects of them are. Right. So gray divorce is really, uh, they talk about anybody over the age of 50 uh, that is going through a divorce. And these are marriages that have been a long-term marriage. These people have been married for 20, 30, 40 years, and all of a sudden, you know, the kids go off to college and they're looking at each other saying, you know, I don't have anything in common with you anymore. Or, you know, they were both doing their lives while all of this was going on, and one day they wake up when they retire and they say, you know what? We both, like Kenny says, we we both deserve to be happy. So, you know, let's just split this marriage up. So sometimes it's not acrimonious at all. It's just people have grown apart. Other times there's a, what, you know, we used to call midlife crisis, where all of a sudden one spouse says, you know, hey, you know, I'm really successful now and I can get somebody uh, younger and cuter and more fit and et cetera. And so, you know, an affair will take place. And then the marriage breaks apart. And then, you know, there's there's a lot that needs to be split up. You've got a lot of assets. By then, people have a house, multiple houses, vacation homes. They've got many cars. They have um, 
jewelry and artwork and everything that goes along with a successful long marriage. And they become much more complicated to split up. Also, there's sometimes businesses involved. So you have to have a business valuation done and you have to figure out how much of the business can go to the other spouse and the earnings from the business. So gray divorce is really anything over the age of 50. People have been in long-term relationships and there's a lot of assets to be split. Um, the child custody thing doesn't usually come into it because by then the kids are grown and out of the house and in college, etc. So you don't have to worry about you know, who gets custody. There could still be some child support payments going on, but the majority of the gray divorces, there are generally a lot of assets at stake. And if there's cheating involved, and it doesn't even have to be cheating with another person, it could be financial cheating. You could have people who have been hiding money on the side, cash businesses where the where one person, for example, a car dealership, right? And cars are, are flying off the lot and they're not getting put into the little book. And so you get a forensic accountant to come in and say, hey, you know what? <laughs> there's, there's some uh, extra money being made here. Uh, the quickest way of finding that out is you look at your at the lifestyle and you say, hey, look at these credit card bills and, and look at the uh, cash that's going out all the time and then look at what's been sent to the IRS. And uh, those are usually settled very quickly because uh, you can basically say, all right, let's go to the IRS with this. And all of a sudden there's, uh, there's an agreement on the table. Uh, that doesn't happen often, but I have seen that happen. But with this 40-year divorce, it was a case of somebody who um, was cheating. And the wife found out and decided that was it and uh, threw everything out onto the sidewalk. Um, and uh, that's that's where it is right now. It's uh, the courts are closed, so things can't happen uh, as far as getting things resolved. But we're definitely putting all the uh, finances in place. They have to file a statement of net worth as soon as they uh, file for divorce. So we're putting together all the assets and all the liabilities. And at this point, there are many more assets than liabilities. And uh, it's, it's going to be a, uh, a big win for her at the end of the day, even though it feels like a uh, slap in the face at the moment. Yeah, I can't imagine having to go through the dissolution of a marriage during quarantine. That just seems like the absolute worst possible thing. Well, the most the most interesting thing is that we're seeing a lot right now because people who were cheating on one another, it's becoming much more evident since they're they're with each other all the time now. Um, and those who just were in miserable relationships, they're becoming more and more miserable because they're living in the same uh, four walls with the person um, during this lockdown. Yeah. One of the things, I mean, personally, and then given the nature of this as an estate planning podcast, this probably doesn't come as a surprise, but that most interests me about, about great marriage and great divorce is that I, I, I think it's most tuned into estate planning. But ideally, you know, everyone, who, you know, at no matter what age you're getting divorced, you're factoring in your estate plan and it should exist. But realistically, people who are getting divorced at 25, their estate plan is probably not coming too much into it. But people who are getting divorced at 65, yes. just mathematically, there's a higher percentage that they need to worry about having an estate plan. And also, they may need to worry about their own divorce and then their kids may be married and they may be worried about their kids' subsequent divorce and how the money starts to trickle down through the generations. Um, do you mind talking about some of those issues and, and sort of looking that far forward into you know, beyond death almost from the divorce? 
Sure. So um, trust in estate attorneys, when you meet with them to put together um, your wills, will talk about where you want the money to go. We've seen a lot of um, celebrity divorces, for example, where the state plan will stipulate that certain money is going to the wife, certain money is going to the kids, those types of things. You also, we've, we've seen um, people who have not planned. I mean, I've heard on your uh, podcast a number of times where celebrities die without a will, and then it's up to the state to figure out what to do. Uh, it's very, very important, both without a divorce and with death, that you have your wishes in your will so that there's no question about where you wanted this money to go. So if you're like Prince, you know, and you die without a will, and then you're leaving it up to the state to figure out which heirs are and are not going to get it. Um, Kenny Rogers, I don't know what his stipulations were. I imagine that with a uh, long-term 22-year marriage, you know, that finally lasted longer than any of his other ones, that he has things taken care of for his wife. But it's very important to have an estate plan that has a will that shows exactly where you want your money to go. A lot of these billionaires are donating money. They're saying, I'm going to die and I don't want my heirs living, you know, just going and spending all my money. I want them to actually have a profession. I'm going to give the majority of my money to the Gates Challenge. But with um, regular people, you know, who aren't billionaires, if they have a trust that's set up they can make sure that money is going to a particular person. If they have a will that's set up, the will will stipulate exactly where the money, this person wanted that money to go on their demise. In divorce, it's really a prenup or a postnup that will stipulate what another person is getting. But they can also put a trust together to make sure that a particular person is taken care of. Elderly parents, a child from a prior marriage, somebody with disabilities that you want to take care of for a long time. So those are the types of things that you can put in place. And it's very important to think about. And when you sit with your trust and estate attorney, those are some of the questions that they will be asking you so that it makes you think in terms of where you want the money to go. Yeah, for a lot of this talk we've just been having, it's kind of been, we've been thinking of divorce as sort of asset division. Um, but I find that the intersection between divorce and estate planning is much more asset protection. Um, and so you know, the tr that's where the trust, as you mentioned, really can be a, a highly valuable instrument um, in, in something you know, beyond in, in just control of where things go. Um, you know, we're, if we're getting divorced, me, me and my spouse are getting divorced. We're on the same page now, but I don't know who my spouse is going to marry in the future. And I don't know what their intentions are going to be for this money. I don't know if they're going to like my kids who I want to get it. I don't know if my kid is going to get married and then we are not going to like that child's spouse and not want them to have the money. So trusts, or maybe we just want to make sure the money goes to charity and you know, right. something as simple as that, as you mentioned. And, and trusts can, in different flavors, can help with all of those things. You know, you can make right. them to sort of control the flow of these things, even through relationships and across generations. Right. And especially with celebrities, you know, a lot of them have management teams that will make sure that things are written well. Um, the ones that 
you bring up sometimes in your podcasts are the ones where they have, you know, people who really shouldn't be in that position, like, you know, a, uh, a parent or, you know, their best friend or their, uh, their sister or brother. Um, a lot of times, if you have somebody who does not know what to do and how to do it, um, it really behooves you to sit down with somebody that has a lot of experience and is experienced with the type of earner you are. So whether you're a real estate person or you're a restaurateur or you're, you're a Kenny Rogers that's an entertainer and entrepreneur, sitting down with a professional who has that type of background, who knows what to ask, where are the royalties coming from, how much are you getting every time your jingle gets on the radio, those kinds of things will help protect those assets going forward should a divorce happen or even a death. You know, he has five children from five different marriages, as you said in the beginning. So what happened was the first one he didn't have any contact with because that was part of his divorce agreement. He was married at 19, got divorced at 20, she got pregnant, they had the kid, the parents took the kid, she got remarried, and the other father has been the father of this child. So I don't know whether it's in his will or not, or there is a trust set up for this child, but he was estranged from that child since the age of 20. He died at 81. That's 61 years. We don't know whether there's been any contact with that person. However, the other children, he definitely would have wanted to take care of. And the most recent, the twins, you know, he, that was his, you know, the love of his life finally at the, you know, you, you said that he, he got married. She was 28 years uh, younger than he was. So, you know, he has, he has still young teen kids and he's going to want to make sure that they're taken care of and the children from the other marriages are taken care of. Uh, so that in a divorce, it's really important to stipulate exactly what you want. Um, and it, the trusts are the best way to do that. Olivia, this has been a great talk. Um, but I'd like to, I'm going to put you on the spot here as I do with many of my guests. Oh, good. And, um, if there's one main theme, one piece of advice for advisors when they have clients coming to them, you know, with possibilities of planning for divorce, what's the most important piece of advice you can give or most important aspect to pay attention to? So what I tell them is that divorce is all about the money and you have to come in prepared to have all of your statements, all of your assets, everything. There's usually one person in a marriage that does the majority of the financials and the other person just says, oh, you're good at this, you do that. I tell everybody, you need to be involved. You need to know what the assets are, where the assets are located, and what to do once you get the money in a settlement. So working with a financial planner, I'm a certified divorce financial analyst. I sit down with them. We go through their files or on their computers, etc. Find out where the money is, how much you have, and then most importantly, put together a budget. Because no matter how rich you are, Kenny Rogers said in his biography that he was broke at 30 and he was broke at 50. And it's not because money wasn't coming in. It's because it was going out faster than it was coming in. So you need to live within your means. And in a divorce, one amount of money was taking care of two people in one household. Once a divorce is over, 
you are now having that same amount of money taking care of two households. And one divided by two does not equal one. So unless you have a ton of money and you can keep living your lifestyle, it's important to have realistic expectations of what you can afford going forward. So we're a lot of time, folks. I'd like to thank Aviva Pinto for being just a fantastic guest here. Thank you for having me. And for all of our listeners... Uh, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.